Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to welcome today's guest on the show. His name is Boz Chavidian. He's the founder of Grace, an internationally recognized nonprofit organization that equips religious organizations with the tools they need to correctly respond to allegations of sexual abuse and educates them on how to create safeguards to protect children in their communities. As a renowned expert on sexual abuse, particularly within faith communities, Boz has been widely quoted in media outlets such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and NBC Nightly News. He's the co-author of the Child Safeguarding Policy Guide, a handbook for religious institutions looking to improve their child protection policies. He's also published scholarly articles such as Predators and Propensity, the proper approach for determining the admissibility of prior bad acts evidence in child sexual abuse prosecutions, in the American Journal of Criminal Law, and Catching American Sex Offenders Overseas, a proposal for a federal-mandated reporting law in the UMKC Law Review. Boz also wrote a weekly column for the Religious News Service. Boz also served as a professor at Liberty University School of Law, where he taught employment law, criminal law, and procedure in child abuse law. Boz currently serves as an adjunct professor at Stetson University, where he teaches employment law and other business law-related courses. He is of counsel with the Landisgram French firm and represents abuse victims from around the country. Uh, I got connected with Baha's, at least becoming familiar with who he was, back in 2013. And I want to give some context to this episode just of how I became aware of Baz for the first time. And I think it's going to be really relevant to you as a listener. Uh, but I came in touch with Boz. Um, and became familiar with him back in 2013. Uh, in 2011, I talk about it in other episodes, my bubble burst. I, I started realizing the uh, issue of, of sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. Um, and around that time, I was, I was frequenting a lot of forums trying to find information. Uh, I was, uh, you know, stuff fundies like I was over on, um, I, I was over on, uh, the, uh, 
I, I'm blanking on the name uh, right now. I was I was on a, another site. I was on the Fighting Fundamentalist forum, and uh, and I ended up becoming aware of the Grace Report done at Bob Jones University. And I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. But it revealed some pretty horrific ways that abuse was being handled at BJU. And uh, there was a huge report. Bob Jones uh, made headlines because they hired Grace, uh, Boss's organization, to do an independent investigation of sex abuse and how it was dealt with at the college. They ended up firing Grace halfway through and then rehiring them after uh, being met with a lot of backla- uh, backlash. And I really appreciated the uh, the work that uh, Boz has done. I've followed him since then. I've, I've watched him speak at you know, numerous conferences of the last few years and uh, have, have watched his, his streams and, and his, his YouTube content. I've read some of the articles that they put out through grace and uh, I just really appreciate the work he's doing. I wanted to bring him on the show. He's one of the guests from since day one, I've wanted to connect with, and I'm absolutely honored that he decided to join me on the show. So without further ado, here is my interview with Boz Chavidjan. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Boz Chavidian on the show with us today. And a lot of questions, people were really excited about this interview. And I just want to say firsthand, thank you so much for all the work you've done in this area. Well, Eric, uh, I, I just told somebody this morning, I said, it takes a village and I'm just one of the villagers and I'm serving alongside some pretty amazing villagers, but I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So your first job really was as a prosecutor. And so you were on the front lines in the trenches, really, of seeing some of the most despicable cases. You were seeing these abuse cases firsthand from a kind of legal perspective. What was it that kind of opened your eyes to sex abuse specifically out of that career? And and what made you decide to pivot into making that the focus of your career over the last couple of years? Yeah, that's a good question. I didn't know much about this subject when I was growing up. There was there was a family member who had been sexually abused as a young person, and so I was familiar with that. But it really wasn't until, like you said, I became a prosecutor. And when you're a prosecutor, at least in the office that I was at here in Florida, they by the time you get to the felony division, which are the serious offenses, they give you all types of cases. They give you uh, burglary and sale and delivery, and then you might get a rape case or child sexual abuse case. And very quickly, I realized once I began handling the sexual offense cases, how it just opened my eyes. It opened my eyes to the horror of it all. You cannot sit in a room with a nine-year-old girl who who is telling you about what her father's best friend did to her and not be moved to your core. And what bothered me as a prosecutor was because of, I think, the fact that those cases are really difficult to prosecute and because they involve a very uncomfortable topic mm-hmm. that a lot of prosecutors either pled them out really quickly to, to some type of lesser offense yeah. or didn't file on them to begin with because they just didn't want to deal with it. And I remember seeing that time and time again, I'm thinking, man, these are the most horrific reprehensible crimes that I think could ever exist. And we are, actually spending more time on a sale and delivery or a burglary of somebody's garage where somebody took a lawnmower and we're discarding these cases. And so long story short, I ended up going to my boss and said, what if we started a sexual crimes unit that that would just focus on those offenses? We would bring prosecutors who really had a commitment to those types of cases and 
And to begin with, I'll start it. In fact, if everybody wants to give me their sex offense cases and I'll give them all my burglaries and sale and deliveries, we can at least start that way. And he was thrilled with it. Everybody was thrilled with it Mm -hmm. uh, because that meant that my colleagues who didn't really like those cases to begin with were able to hand those over to me. And we started that unit and did that for probably three or four years. And I think when I left my docket, uh, the number of cases I was supervising was well over a thousand. And I noticed over and over again, as a prosecutor, those types of cases, how many of those cases involved in some way, a faith community. And whether somebody was abused by somebody in a faith community, or whether the victim's family was part of a faith community, and even if the victim wasn't abused within that faith community, they brought this matter to the attention of the faith community. And almost every time, the faith community royally blew it. And I just thought, man, as a Christian, I thought maybe I was naive at the time. I thought the church was supposed to be the safest place for us. I thought the church was a, a refuge. Mm-hmm. And, and boy, have I learned differently in the last 25 years. And, mm-hmm. and so that, that's what led me, I'll be quiet after this, but that, that's what led me after leaving the, the prosecutor's office and went into private practice and just felt a real need to take what I'd learned on the front lines of this issue as a prosecutor and, uh, and try to train and equip and educate and hopefully help transform the church to actually become that safest space for vulnerable people, to become the place where where sur- survivors of abuse were actually running towards, not running away yeah. um, from. And, and so that's why in 2004, I, I helped uh, start Grace, which continues to this day. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously, recognizing it in the faith community and a shocking amount of the cases involving some member of a faith community. I definitely want to talk about why that happens. Why does that happen within a, a place where it should feel safer than normal? But you were no stranger to the faith world. Your grandfather was Billy Graham. You're as far as evangelical royalty, if you want to use that word, that was the line that you were coming from. Was there any point when you first start diving these cases, you have that bubble burst? I think everyone has that moment where it's, okay, this isn't this safe little Christian bubble where nothing bad happens. Was there ever a point transitioning where you thought it where it affected your faith or where you felt like, man, seeing this in a world that I'm very familiar with is it's hard to swallow that. Like, how do you address that? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if there was ever that moment. I would say in many ways, I was, I still have those moments that, that somebody asked me not long ago, has this impacted your faith? I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. In, in many different ways. But I think to my parents' credit, I don't think I ever grew up even though I was in growing up in an evangelical bubble, there's no doubt about it. I remember, in fact, I was just telling my wife yesterday or the day before, because I was listening to the auto, the audio book of biography of John Lewis, late John Lewis. Mm. And I told my wife, I said, when I was growing up in the world, in the pond that I was swimming in, Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King, I always was always told that these people were communists and mm. horrible people. And I didn't know any different. And then mm. I sort of got out of that world and I'm like, are you kidding me? These are like heroes of, and on so many levels. Yeah. And so yes, I was growing, I was growing up in that bubble, but I also, to my parents' credit, was not overly sheltered. And my parents were not what we'd call fundamentalists. My, they drank. If you, that's sometimes a litmus test. You drank. Yeah. We didn't. We were told what type of music we couldn't listen to. I mean, it was a very real family. It was. It was, it was a great family. It was a motley group and loud and obnoxious. But. So I don't think I had this preconceived idea of 
Christendom as this wonderful little world. But I did had no clue that so many wounded people were inside the church mm. and many of them were being wounded inside the church mm. and that the church all too often didn't give a crap. Yeah. And so that's, that is something that I have had to reconcile with and continue to reconcile with to this day. And so I, and I struggle with that. I told somebody the other day, I said, I have a really low view of the church. Yeah. I have a high view of Jesus. I just have a really low view of the church. I don't stop considering myself an evangelical a number of years ago. I don't know what that is anymore. And yeah, but in, in some ways, on the flip side of all that, I think my faith has changed in a more beautiful way. I see Jesus in the most unlikely of people and oftentimes in the most unlikely of places. Hmm. And I love that. I have experienced and seen Jesus in the faces of people more oftentimes not inside the church than I have inside the church. And so that gives me hope. And it shows me, in my opinion, a real glimpse of who God is. And Mm. it's a very different God than the one that I thought I knew as I was growing up. I, yeah, I you've touched on this a little bit, and I think there is, and and I've been doing this for, like I told you, I, I became familiar with you in 2013 as a senior in high school. So you've been on this journey a lot longer dealing with this, and my bubble burst in 2011, like very clearly. It was like one oh. day I felt like, hey, this is like the safest, most perfect place. Like we are the church, oh. this area, to oh, what's going on, to then there's like piles and piles of these stories that I'm coming across as a teenager. And, and even now, even now, almost 10 years later, I'm sitting there trying to reconcile how the church doesn't look radically different than the world when it comes to world, quote unquote, when it comes to these cases of abuse. And you mentioned one of your videos I I had been watching, just brushing back up on some of the content you put out. And you talk about one in four women uh, have been abused, one in six men. So you you basically said it's safe to say probably 20% of a congregation is sexual assault survivors. And you said it earlier, it's true. It doesn't seem like the church takes that seriously. And I feel comfortable saying the church at large really seems to struggle to take that seriously. Do you have any, in all these years of looking at it and talking with pastors and churches and maybe sometimes trying to shake people to get them to understand what a problem this is, why do you think there's this just lack of care at best and anger about people bringing it up at, at worst? Yeah, there's. I think there's so many different dynamics and reasons for that. I don't think there's just one. I think in the conservative Christian world, for whatever reason, when you talk about sexual abuse or child sexual abuse, for whatever reason, there's too many conservative Christians who that just doesn't grab their heart and grieve them. Hmm. I remember being on a radio show just a few years ago. I don't know how I got on it. I just was on it. And finally, I realized while I'm on it, oh, this is a very conservative Christian radio show. In fact, I was texting my family going, I'm not sure how I got on the show and pray I don't say anything really stupid. But I remember talking about this issue and talking about the statistics and talking about some examples of individuals I'd enca- I have encountered who were abused inside the church and the destruction that it that it caused in so many aspects of their life. And the interviewer talked about it a little bit, but then this person quickly switched over to, let's talk about false accusations. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, and I, and I 
I quickly pushed back and I said, why do we spend so much time? Why are we, why? Okay, we can talk about that, but I'm telling you this huge thing here and here's what you want to talk about. And I, after that show, I remember thinking, I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation in conservative Christendom where that's the response that I get. And then you have to ask yourself, why? What is, what's driving that? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that there are many aspects of the church, especially the church that I'm familiar with here in the United States, that lend itself to abusive environments, that lend itself to making the culture unsafe for vulnerable people. We have churches that are largely so much about control, about men in control, where oftentimes women and children are marginalized, they're devalued, if not ignored. Mm. And just that alone, and there's so many other things, but just that alone doesn't create a safe space. It actually creates a very dangerous space. It creates a opportunity for those who want to hurt the vulnerable people in the church, because those vulnerable people are also not valued people, especially by the leadership oftentimes the self-imposed leadership. And if you say anything, if you speak out and say, wait a minute, this is not right, or this is a concern of mine, what often happens is, or even if you say, hey, my child was sexually abused by somebody in this church, what the typical response, all too typical response by leadership is either to push you back in line, get you back in line, which means be, be quiet and we'll take care of it. And usually they have no clue what they're doing. Or if not, then they push you out the door and you lose community. Mm. And I can't tell you how many families now I represent whose children have been sexually abused by somebody in the church. And shortly after they brought that issue to the attention of leadership, they find themselves outside of community. Mm. And I thought, man, that is back ass words. What part of that has anything to do with Jesus? Like the most vulnerable who are then victimized, who then just a small percentage of them are, are feel safe enough to step forward and say something and they find themselves excluded from community. And I, then you realize after a period of time, Eric, that just because a church calls itself a church, doesn't make it one. Hmm. And so you can call yourself a church. You can be first Presbyterian, first Baptist. I don't care what it is, but if you're not, if you don't reflect the very basics of the character of Jesus, then you're not a church. Hmm. And, and so that the fact that those types of places can be unsafe places is not a surprise to me, but they're not churches. They call hmm. themselves that, but just because you call yourself that doesn't make you one. Sure. Yeah. You, you mentioned what doesn't make for a, a safe place. And I know there's like countless resources you produced, but what would you say are, are some of the especially for so many that are sitting there, especially listen to my show, there's Christian, non-Christian alike that feel somewhat ostracized by the church and that they're looking for opportunities to maybe join a new church. And they're looking for what are some immediate signs to look for that it would be a positive of a safe environment? What's yeah. a healthy church look like? And what's, what are some red flags that, that people should look out for? If you had to, if you had to sit back and go like these two or three things tend to show up in every negative environment I've looked at. And these two or three things are the token of every good church I've ever seen. Yeah. I I wish it was that simple. Um, (laughs) What I could say is this look, first of all, I think, and I'm beginning to really believe this more and more as I do this work, 
is how we do church in Western world, I think has to be really reevaluated. Because if you look at the New Testament church, it was small groups of people meeting in homes for the most part. Mm-hmm. And now we've turned church into an industry. Yeah. And we turn church into full-time professions. And we tr- turn church into programs. And we turn church into a leader, usually a male leader, who gets up in front of the congregation. We all come to church. We do the songs. We do the offering and all that. But the whole service culminates with who? This male leader getting up and speaking for 30 minutes if you're lucky, 45 or 50 minutes if you're not so lucky, and nobody interrupts, people taking notes, and this man gets up week in and week out to do that. And then we wonder why we create, we have churches today that are where the pulpits are filled with narcissistic men. Hmm. And those types of leaders also tend to be quite controlling. So the church then becomes very controlling over the very people it's supposed to be serving. So whether you're having to sign a covenant with the church to become a member, whether you're, I was deposing a pastor a few weeks ago, and and he actually had a rule in his church that if you were going to go visit another church, you had to get his written permission to do. That's the ultimate of control. Like, I can't even go visit another church without getting his permission to go do so. Those types of environments are unhealthy to begin with, Mm -hmm. but those types of environments are really dangerous for vulnerable people Hmm. because vulnerable people have no voice. They have no seat at the table and there's very little accountability when it comes to leadership and the decisions made by leadership. Because if you don't like, you're either to trust the leadership because they're appointed by God. And if you don't like that, then you obviously have a problem with God. And that means you either need to get back in line or you're you have a divisive spirit and we need you to we need you to leave. And so I think when you're looking for churches, is looking for those things. What's what's the polity of the church? How's it made? What's the makeup, the governance of the church? Do you go on their website and, and this is just me? Do I go on their website and every single picture I see of any leader is a male? You might see, then suddenly you see a pictures, a couple, a couple pictures of females, and oh good, they have some. Females in leadership, oh, no, that's the executive assistant. That's the administrative assistant. That's the child care coordinator. And I'm not minimizing those types of positions. But what it tells me is, okay, male-dominated, usually white, at least in the world that I've been swimming in, white male-dominated leaders. Now, that doesn't mean that white males are evil, bad people. It just tells me a little bit about something about that church. And then you go visit the church. Be listening. Your antennas need to be out. What is... What are the what's being required of us to be a part of this church? Do we have to believe what are we being required to believe in order to be a part of this church body? What are we required to do to be a part of this church body? Are we required to and 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 is are we repeatedly told directly or indirectly that we're to trust leadership? And that we don't really need to know the things because leaders, that's why they're, they've been put there. Those are all signs of, I would say, that that should cause some concern. I think one thing as it relates to child protection, as I, I share with parents, if you're visiting a church and you're thinking about maybe attending, ask to see the child protection policies. Yeah. Engage their response. Are they a little irritated that you asked? Because if they are, you probably need to get out. If they 
say, here you go, absolutely, or they're on our website, that's a good sign. And even if they don't have them, if they have a teachable spirit, say we don't, and we're actually pretty embarrassed about that, and we need to change that, and maybe would you even help us? That's a more positive sign. So those are the types of things. And then how how a church, and this goes along with a little bit of what I said earlier, how a church deals with disagreement. Mm. If you don't agree, and largely you come from the more of the fundamentalist world, but but in the fundamentalist evangelical world, there's so much of an, a focus on right belief. Yeah. Sunday school, church in the morning, midweek service. It's all about getting us to believe the right way. And so when you, is it, a, is it an environment where you feel free to ask a question and go, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Or I have a real problem with this concept or that what you just shared. And is that welcomed mm-hmm. or is that suppressed? And are you basically, again, told to get back in line? Right. All those things and more are, to me, as I'm getting older, are good indicators to help me assess the health of a church, knowing that every church is made up of messy people, including me. Mm-hmm. Right. So knowing what, I'm not walking into a perfect environment, but am I walking into a humble, teachable environment or self-righteous environment that so often says it's us against the world and we focus all of our time on the ills and evils of the world without even beginning to look at ourselves first. Right. Yeah. Us against the world could be on the church letterhead for a lot of the churches that we deal with. And you've said the word teachable uh, several times. You keep saying teachability, teachable. And look, not everybody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. No organization's perfect. You're constantly learning, you're growing, you're strengthening things. So I have a twofold question, but the first thing I want to know is for individuals who are in some of these churches where maybe there is no child protection policy, or maybe they do have male dominated leadership or like some of these red flags that, that can pop up. Maybe it's not intentional wrongdoing, but it it could open the door to something negative. How long do you stay in an environment and try to affect change from the inside? And when do you just say, Hey, I'm going to step away and just avoid this before it becomes something bad. Yeah. As I get older, that time period has gotten shorter. I think younger, I would say, I would have said, stay in, try to make those changes. As I get older, I think you, if it's part of your community, because for many Christians, church is a huge part of their community. Yeah, And so it's a big deal for people to leave a church. Mm. It's not just like a, it's even a bigger deal than for most people than leaving a job, because especially if you have a family, your kids have relationships, your spouse has relationships. You have, it's a huge deal. And so I think a lot of people, I, in my experience, a lot of people decide to just be quiet and suck it up and keep the community rather than picking up and leaving. Mm-hmm. But I would say that a sign would be if something's concerning you and it's and you've really given it some thought and maybe even bounced it off a couple of people to make sure, am I seeing this correctly? And you make the decision to go share your concern with a member of leadership. How they respond to that to be is, is key. If they are very defensive, I'd leave. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't waste my time. If they say, if they're placating, but what I call hollow placating, is, which is, oh yeah, that's really important. We'll, we're going to get on that and we'll get back to you. Give them that chance. But if they don't and they don't follow up, circle back. Hey, where are we? Where are you on the matter we talked about? And if you get more placating, or sometimes at that point in time, you get the defensiveness, like almost how dare you question that we're not dealing with this, then just go. Life's too short to try to swim in such a toxic sea and think that somehow that you're going to detoxify it. 
by the time you realize it's toxic, it's pretty toxic and in you're not going to detoxify it. It's actually going to, it's going to wound you and, and hurt you. And it's a poison and you probably need to, not you probably, I would highly recommend pulling yourself out of it. And keep in mind this too. I think people forget this too. Church is not a prison, which means you have complete control as to whether you continue to be there or you want to leave. <laughs> I don't think people think that as much because of that community dynamic. Mm -hmm. But if you want to leave, if you feel like you need to leave, by all means, leave. And what keeps a lot of people in a church is the fear of what other people will think. Mm -hmm. And again, I think as I get older, I just don't care that much about that anymore. Obviously, I care if, if I'm offensive or hurtful to people, but like doing something or not doing something because Mr. And Mrs. Smith may wonder about my salvation or when I, I just, you can't care about that. Self-care is self-care and family care is way more important than that. Yeah. No, there's so many layers to it. I was just appearing on a podcast and they, they were asking about it and they said, what did it mean to you stepping away from the community I was in for the first 18 years of, of my yeah. life? And I was like, it, it was my politics. It was my religion. It was my yeah. family. It was my community. It was my spiritual guides. It was, especially in the fundamentalist world where I've said this often, but they were called the man of God, but you could have taken away the first two words. And that's what it felt like you're walking away from. Yeah. It felt like this is God telling me this yeah. is what he wants me to do. And so I could be in God's will, the word they always used in God's will or out of it. And that's that's a hard thing to wrestle with. And you're going, I don't think this is God's will. Like the way that this is structured doesn't seem like it reflects anything, anything scriptural, let alone anything moral or ethical in any way. Well, I, I think that you touch on an issue that I think is, we haven't mentioned here, but I think it's really core to a lot of what we're talking about. And that's spiritual abuse. So much of the harm that's inflicted on people inside the church is that much more aggravated because it's inside the church because people see that so much of the harm being perpetrated against them is, is either not harm because it's coming from somebody who's a man of God, or we have this, we're supposed to bear our burdens as Christians. So that means I, I can be a punching bag for mm -hmm. leaders and God calls me to carry my bird, to, to follow him and carry the cross. And so this is what I'm doing. And so we stay and those leaders exploit that culture and that belief and that's spiritual abuse and so that's why so many people walk out of these types of churches never to walk inside another church again and i don't blame them because they have been eviscerated not only physically or sexually or emotionally but spiritually they can't literally pick up a bible and read it without trembling because it's a source of trauma and that's tragic yeah it, so the other part I wanted to talk about, and I definitely want to circle back to the side of a victim of this and how to move forward. Because like you mentioned before the call, there's some big barriers there before you consider sharing your story, first of all, but then pursuing any kind of legal action or justice for what happened. But for those who are listening, who are pastors, I get this conversation often. I have people message me and say, hey, I'm a pastor. I had someone message me, I'm starting a church. What are some baseline resources? Like we don't want to do this wrong. What's the best thing for them to do? Is it is there a certain book you'd recommend? Is it calling in someone, you know, like Grace to to walk them through the process? What should a church planner or maybe a pastor who's trying to revitalize a church right. and make it safe? What steps should they be taking like right now when they get done listening to no, the show? That's a good question. And to be fair, there are a lot of young pastors that that get this issue so much better mm -hmm. than the older generation. And so they're asking those questions. 
And I, that's, those are awesome questions to ask. And I think it's really important that you're in a better position at the beginning life of a church, or if you're beginning to revitalize a church to address this issue and to make it weave it into the, to the very DNA of the church, much better position than if you're, you've just been hired at, at a certain mega church and they've never had this before. And now you're trying to shift and change an entire culture, which is almost yeah. impossible. Yeah. A, I encourage those, those pastors for doing that uh, because the easiest, easier thing to do would be to, to not deal with it because it's a difficult issue. Second is you have to reach out. Don't be trying to become the expert yourself. Yeah, become learned, learn it on it. Read some books about the topic. But pastors cannot be experts on everything. And quite frankly, sometimes pastors struggle with that, sort of like lawyers, which is they don't like to they don't like to draw those boundaries of saying that's beyond. I don't have tools in my toolbox for that. But when it comes to these types of issues related to abuse, acknowledge you don't have those and seek out the experts that do have those tools. Grace is obviously I'm, I'm biased because I helped start the organization, but uh, I absolutely Grace is, a, is is would be my top choice because it's a group of multidisciplined individuals from lawyers to former pastors to law enforcement investigators who have come together with their combined experience and their combined perspectives, including therapists, and put together, for example, our child safeguarding initiative, which is where they come into a church and will work with you. And it takes anywhere from three to six months where they meet on a distance virtually, but also will do a, a walkthrough of your church to, to, to point out maybe some vulnerable physical areas of the church to get to know the leadership of the church. And by the time the Grace Initiative, Safeguarding Initiative is finished, they have helped educate every demographic of the church from leaders all the way down to youth. And so the hope is that when then when that when grace leaves that process, that church is now on a different trajectory, and it's really at the beginning of a journey that has weaved the protection of children and vulnerable people into their very very DNA of who they are. So do that. The child safeguarding policy guide is something I co-authored with a good friend, Shara Berkovitz. I tried to write that in a way that anybody, not just, you know, church leaders or lawyers or whoever, but anybody could pick that book up and read it and go, okay, here's the A to Z on developing safeguarding policies for children and young people. And the other thing I would say about this, Eric, is when Grace is finished with the safeguarding process, that's just the beginning because there's so many other aspects of abuse that has to be addressed. Adult on adult abuse, spiritual abuse, we have a lot of situations involving intimate partner violence and how churches, that's another area where churches all too often just get it flat wrong. Yeah. And all of these overlap. You can't have child sexual abuse without spiritual abuse. You can't generally, you're not going to have domestic violence without some type of other types of violence and abuse going on, emotional abuse going on in the home. And so all those things overlap and church leaders need to become have a working knowledge and understanding of it, not just from a theological perspective. Uh, I mean, I think that's important, though it can be, depending on what theological perspective is being espoused can actually be hurtful, but also just from a very practical, informed manner, like what are common characteristics of men who abuse? What are common characteristics of spiritual abuse or emotional abuse? What are common care? Just helping them understand that and how to best serve those who are being abused mm -hmm. and hurt. Because I know a lot of 
especially females inside churches who are being abused at home, oftentimes just stay quiet because why would they go forward and disclose the fact that their husband is abusive when their husband is an active member in a church and is good friends with most of the leaders in the church? That's a very, that's a very fearful perspective, a very sobering perspective from any victim to go, and I'm going to step forward and disclose this, hoping that there's going to be a good outcome to all this. Mm. Because oftentimes, sadly, there's no good outcome. That's exactly what I wanted to push into next is the idea of a victim coming forward. And I know I've had people that I know have listened to the show since it started and have reached out to me in the last few months and said, Hey, I know I've been listening. I know we've communicated. I've never told you this, but this happened. Or they've told me, Hey, I'm not ready to talk about it yet because I know. And there's two pieces of this. One, you mentioned before we even started the recording, but there is that feeling of like, how can I sue a church or how can I take action against a a ministry? But then there's also that element of there's a lot of just, and I think somewhat rightfully so, there's not much optimism when it comes to reporting these. There's a feeling, even from talking to to survivors I'm very good friends with who are going through the process right now. They're just, they're, they question, was this worth it? Like, why am I sitting here knowing that he's going to get this sentence or this person took my teenage years and now they served 90 days. There's people saying, so for those sitting there, they're bearing the weight of this horrible story, violated spiritually, physically, sexually in many cases. What would you say to them as far as making that decision to step forward and share? Is there ever a time you wouldn't recommend taking some kind of legal action? Is there, do you always recommend getting on the phone? What would be your words of advice or encouragement? Because I sit there not knowing what to say most of the time outside of listening. I think you're doing actually the right thing is you're there and you're listening because a lot of times, a lot of times there isn't the right thing to say. And we, again, we're trained to try to fix things and say the right things. And sometimes we don't, I, I often share to survivors, I'll say, here's some options But ultimately, this is your story. You are in the driver's seat. Even though most of your life you've been removed from the driver's seat, I want to help encourage you to understand that you can be in the driver's seat. And and in the driver's seat, if that means that you decide you're not going to do anything, but you made that decision, Mm -hmm. you were empowered to make that decision not to do something, and that's completely okay. But you also also should think about doing something and saying something. And oftentimes it's not, you don't do it ultimately because you do it ultimately because you want to take something that was, that was taken from you and you want to be empowered to you control the narrative, you control the step forward and report it. You're the one who's going to take this secret that this person thought they had gotten away with for years and you're going to bring it out in the open. Now, what you can't control is, what law enforcement and what the prosecutors do with it ultimately. And so if you're bringing it forward exclusively for that reason, you may be very disappointed. Hmm. And I would say that should be certainly part of your reason, but you really have to do it for you. You have to do it to decide this was done to me. He's gone on to live his life. I've been a wreck and in shambles most of my life because of the trauma that was inflicted. And so I'm going to take some of that back. And that is part of my step forward is doing this for me to know that I'm empowered to share my story with whomever, whenever I want. And I think that 
though the outcome of a case, civil or criminal case is important, I will often tell clients, I, I can't predict what the jury is going to do. But what I can say is even if they come back and they don't rule in your favor, in many ways, and it's easier for me to say this, I acknowledge it, you've won. You've took, you took a step forward, you used your voice and you took a step forward. And even if others choose not to believe you, you know what happened and you stepped forward and, and exposed it. And I think that's actually really important in the lives of many people who've been traumatized because they've been so used to having that taken away from them, that they're so used to not being seen, not being heard, that they don't matter, that they have zero power. And to be able to realize that, wait a minute, I can be seen and I can be heard and I can be empowered to communicate my story, my experience publicly is huge. Mm. And so now I would say, don't do that alone. I think it's important that you walk that journey with other people. I, as a lawyer now, as I step down from being the executive director of Grace, I do nothing but represent sexual abuse survivors around the country. And and I'm, it's a huge privilege for me because I, 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 I had the privilege of having the opportunity to walk with so many of them on just a small part of a very long, difficult journey. Mm-hmm. And they continue to teach me so much that I'm uh, incredibly grateful uh, for. But I also would say that at the end of the process, in my cases, we're suing churches. So we're looking for money. And sometimes they come to me, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. I said, listen, I understand that, but it should be about the money because what that youth pastor did to you 15 years ago traumatized you. And it's required you to try to seek out counseling. Why should you have to dip into your hard earned money? Or even if you don't even have any money, why should you have to figure out where that money is going to come from to pay for the counseling that was because of of the damage and and trauma that was inflicted upon you Mm. by that person. So they should be responsible. So in many ways, it is about the money. And there's no shame in that. Absolutely no shame in that. So I just, I think it's, I think it's an important step. And, but everybody has to make that decision on their own. And, but they can't walk it alone because the, one of the worst things for, at least from my experience for a survivor is one who feels like they're absolutely alone and, Mm. and isolated. And and just to have an advocate walk alongside of them, whether it's me or somebody else, can make a big difference. I had a client not long ago. She had been sexually abused by her father for years growing up. And she she's down in her 40s and she's boss. I look at my dad and he's retired, living in a nice house. I'm struggling each and every day. And why should that be? Like, I want to do something about this. And I said, well, good for you. She goes, I think I want to sue my dad for what he did to me. I said, Absolutely. Part of that process was me writing the father what I call a demand letter, where I unpack what he did and I let him know how he violated the law and I let him know that we were going to sue him for it. You know, I write those quite a bit. And so I put a lot of time into it, but I don't really, never really thought about how that demand letter impacts the survivor until when I sent it to him, I sent her a copy. and, And she contacted me and said, like, reading that letter was a transformative moment in my life. She goes, because you're the first person other than me that has stepped forward and been an advocate for me. Wow. And, and what you wrote, just reading what you wrote, she goes, regardless of what happens in the outcome of this case, 
what you wrote changed my life. And I'm not saying that to benefit me. Anybody could do that. I'm just saying that I didn't realize until that moment the impact of having somebody walk alongside and advocate for that survivor can have on that person's life, regardless of the outcome of the criminal or civil case. Yeah. That's so much. I, I, yeah, it was just another interview. There were a lot of interviews this week. And, and one of the, one of the things I just brought up is how incredibly isolating we mentioned the community side we mentioned, but just in general, like abuse, even outside the church, like it's a very isolating thing. Everyone I talk to that, that comes to me after they hear an episode of the show, the first thing they say is I thought I was the only one who experienced blank. And then hearing this person share their story, made me want to reach out and share mine. And so that sense of, it, and it's the same thing. It's desiring that community. And of course, no one would choose that to be the community they become a part of, but to not feel that sense of isolation is like the number one thing I hear mm-hmm. survivors talk about that helped them was feeling like I'm not alone. And, and I'm curious, just one last question. I have a couple of questions from my listeners I wanted to ask, but sure. I, I know you moved from Grace. You stepped down at the beginning of the year and in transition into just going back to full-time as a lawyer, what kind of prompted that? Cause like I, I was sitting there and at first when I saw you step down, like just because of the evangelical world, I was like, Oh no, like what happened with the, the founder of grace. And I saw very quickly, it was, it was totally just a pivot career wise, but I was sitting there and I was just curious. I, I sat there going, man, we have the Falwell situation. We have the Ravi Zacharias situation. We have, it seems like more than ever, an organization like Grace is needed. The education and conversation needs to happen. What what was it? Did you just feel a need to be back to boots on the ground back in the attorney space? What prompted that move? And this is clearly for me, I've just been curious what the mindset sure, was. Sure, sure. Yeah, I came to the board a couple of years ago and I just said, listen, I, I really f- believe that I need to pivot off as executive director. I had, by that point in time, I had been the executive director for about 14 years as a part-time because my other life was during that most of that period of time was as a full-time law professor. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize that Grace, as it continued to grow because of the very things you were just describing, needed a full-time executive director. You can only do so much as a part-time director. And when I started out Grace for many years, I was Grace. And mm-hmm. we had a few <laughs> independent contractors, but the last few years, we actually have a staff now. And that staff deserved somebody who is full-time, who's fully invested in the organization and, and a, on a regular basis, ongoing basis throughout the week. And so I had to make the decision, do I want to leave my teaching and become the full-time full-time director of Grace, or do I want to do something different? Do I feel like I'm, I'm better equipped to do something different? And I, I really made the decision based on two things. One was a growing calling, I think, and I don't use that word lightly, to use my law degree to actually represent survivors. Mm. I was referring a lot of survivors to other lawyers. And a lot of there are a lot of lawyers that do this work that are really good. And there are a lot of lawyers that don't understand victimization. They don't understand the evangelical culture or world. And oftentimes they just see these cases as an opportunity to make money. And I was hearing from more and more survivors who were actually getting traumatized by their legal counsel yeah. um, because they just didn't understand so much of what was going on. And I thought, man, I'm actually in a, I'm equipped. I've got the tools in my toolbox to do this. And I've done it before becoming a a professor. And I think there's a growing need to jump back in and use my law degree to advocate on the ground for survivors. And I think the other, the other that combined with that was that Grace was at a position in its life that it needed a different type of, of director. I'm a vision person. I hate meetings. 
I'm not great with real details. I'm not, I acknowledge that my gift is not creating processes. And those are all things that Grace so badly needed as an or needed as an organization. And I just thought, man, I don't want to be that person because I see this in ministry all the time where the person who starts the organization can't let go. And it's never been about me. Years ago, somebody said something to me that was meant to be a compliment. They said, I think of grace, I think of you. And I remember walking away feeling uncomfortable with that comment and thinking, that's precisely one of the problems here. And we need to change that. And so now we've got Pete Singer, who is, is the new executive director, who is just fantastic. He's got a therapeutic background, which is, again, is another area of need for our staff who who wades in what I call Christian cesspools on a regular yeah. basis. To have an executive director who has got a therapeutic background is really a gift to them. And he's jumping on all those things that I was not really well equipped to do. He's doing. And I talk to him probably once a week and I'm still on the board, but I'm just thrilled. I'm thrilled with the with that leadership and the direction Grace is going. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity that I have to get back to the practice of law, representing survivors, and and when needed, suing churches. And yeah. a lot of Christians have a problem with that. And I say, well, I, I think God can sanctify his church through his ordained civil justice system. Mm-hmm. And if we got to do it, we'll do it. And I've enjoyed it. It's just been a huge privilege for me to jump back into this and, and to walk along these amazing people in their legal journeys. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I, I know we have about five minutes left. I'm going to try to squeeze in these two questions. I, when I mentioned you were coming on, uh, I had two listeners drop these, and they're they probably are much more than five minutes could be spent yeah, talking about them. Play. But but one of them is, what's your response to the emphasis on immediate forgiveness of perpetrators by victims uh, or survivors in Christian environments, and how does that contribute to silencing victims? and survivors. I mentioned to you, I got connected initially the organization through the Bob Jones report, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes. And that was one of the things was people were forced to forgive their abusers. That was like one of the key findings of the report. How do you respond to that kind of emphasis in Christian environments? Uh, I think the Christian environments that push that are for the most part, very institutionally centered. And that is, hey, we need, you need to forgive this offender. And the really, if you really get to the bottom of it, the real thing that's driving that message from most of these institutions is we want to get this over with and mm. we want to move on. Yeah. So we need you to forgive. God calls you to forgive. So you better forgive and you can't wait. You need to do it now. And they think it's a great success if they see this victim and the offender sitting on the front row of the church together. They think, oh, look what God has done. No, you've, you have manipulated and I will be as bold to say, abuse this survivor again by twisting their arm and letting them, making them believe that it's God's design that they immediately forgive this offender. And you've empowered this offender to keep offending. So I guess the short answer to that is don't believe it. (laughs) It's a lie. And it's usually done for the purpose of benefiting the institution, certainly not benefiting and helping the survivor. And the last question is, it's it, it happens to deal with being falsely accused. So they said, I know false accusations are extremely rare, but also know their justice system isn't perfect. It can be extremely biased. So she said, um, they said, I'm trying to navigate my zero tolerance and passion about protecting against child abuse and understanding the difficulties of like minorities with diversity and inclusion. If I understand the question is how do we balance the whole issue of advocating for survivors, but also understanding that there are false 
yeah. allegations that come forward? Yeah. I, I think there are, and it's, it is a vast minority. So part of the question, yeah. part of the thing to think about is how much of your headspace when you're dealing with this issue, are you putting towards false allegations versus the real ones? Because the studies have shown that false allegations are anywhere between one and 7%. Yeah. So it's a, it is a small part. Now, that's another reason why we it's important that we have trained investigators that we report these offenses, that churches don't try to handle them themselves, and that even in the world of law enforcement, that we do a much better job training and equipping our investigators to investigate these cases. When I was a law professor, I had a class, I developed a class for years called Child Abuse in the Law, where I trained future prosecutors on how to prosecute these cases, how to find evidence in these types of cases, because the better you can investigate a case, the better likelihood you're going to find if it is in fact a false allegation, greater likelihood that's that's going to surface. And if it's not a false allegation, the better you investigate it, the greater likelihood is you're going to get a conviction. So it's false allegations are serious, but I would say this as somebody who prosecuted for a number of years, they were rare and the ones that did exist eventually surfaced and yeah. You, we were able to discern pretty quickly that it was a false allegation. I think there are very few, if any, people serving time in state prison for these types of offenses as a result of purely a false accusation. Perfect. Major props to you for squeezing both of those very difficult questions into a four minute space. Last question is just where can people find you if they want to connect with you? I know you do amazing work. If they want to connect with you or your firm, if they're listening to something you said that said, okay, maybe I want to just find out what my options are. What's the best route of communication for them? Yeah, I think uh, I, the best route would either be going to our website, which is landispa.com. Uh, and then you can click to see my profile and contact me that way. Or they can reach me out of my email, which is just boz, B-O-Z, at landispa.com. Yeah, anybody that's listening who has a question about if they're really wrestling, as you talked about with, do I do something? Should I do something? Are they, do I even have any legal options available? If you're one of those people, the best way to find that out is to contact me. And at least you can make an informed decision, even if you decide not to do anything, it can be a decision based upon as much information as you can gather. And I'm happy to work with you in providing you that information. Amazing. Thank you so much, Boz. I know we're, we're at the end of, t- of our time, but I hope it's not the last time that we talk. I really appreciate all of the information you gave and hope that hope that some of the listeners take to heart some of the statements you made in the show. Well, Eric, thanks again for what you're doing here. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.